Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Matthew 11, 1 through 19, the Word of God, will you stand with me as we read it together? When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we've played the, fruit, the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that your word may return to you with, with fruit this morning, that you may not allow it to return void. Father, we pray that you'll attend it with your spirit so that there is power and that the, the, the power works conviction, Father, conviction in many ways of sin, of truth, of righteousness. Father, give us these things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's important to, to, to understand and pay attention to the incredible compliment that Jesus pays this man who is somewhat of a cousin to him. We don't know exactly the degree, the relationship, but they're related. John the Baptist. It's found in these verses. It's, it's contained in these verses. Jesus says something of him that's astounding. And then Jesus says something even more astounding a few moments later to his disciples. The first astounding thing he says is about John the Baptist. The second astounding thing is about the least of the members of the kingdom of heaven. He says of John the Baptist, he, has, he makes a, a, a comparison. He compares him to other men, all preceding men. And he says, of men born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. It's a comparison 
My mother used to say, and perhaps your mother or father used to say, comparisons are odious because it's never nice to compare yourself to someone or to compare two people. But in the end, comparisons are also necessary. Comparisons are how we learn. Comparisons are how we process truth. And comparisons are how we learn what God wants. And so the Bible is filled with comparisons for your sake and mine so that we'll understand where we stand and what we should be seeking. And this comparison that John, that John is at the center of that Jesus makes is vital because Jesus says something about John that's extraordinary. He says, of men born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. In other words, until that moment of the millions, perhaps billions of people born on this earth, there had not been born a greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest man born of a woman until that moment. No one had been greater. And that's a comparison that puts John on this side and all the rest of mankind on, on this side. And so it, it's not an invidious comparison that's trying to tear one person down. Really, it's building John up. It's saying, this is greatness. Everyone else is down. The second comparison we see here is what Jesus says to all of us. And he says that, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, is greater than this man who he's just said is the greatest man born of woman. And so, somehow astoundingly, the fact that John the Baptist was great is not an impediment to your greatness. The supreme greatness of John the Baptist is nevertheless something that you can attain and something that you should even sur surpass. And, and, and don't think that Jesus is saying, John was great, you can be greater in a way that doesn't, is not supposed to lead you to seek to be great. What Jesus is doing in these verses is encouraging greatness. He's calling you to greatness. He's calling me to greatness. He's, he's saying, pursue greatness. The Bible is a storybook of people who pursued greatness and those who didn't. Those who pursued it the right way. Those who pursued it in false ways. It is a storybook of greatness. Great men, great women, great sinners, great wicked people. And as you know, the wickedness of man is often esteemed greatness by man. But God looks down on it and God's measurement of greatness is very distinct and different from the way we normally do it. And so the Bible is full of a challenge. And uh, it's one big challenge and full of discrete challenges, separate challenges to greatness. Throughout the scriptures, we are called to be great, to run the race set before us so as to win, so that we will be people who enter heaven and have rich reward, that we'll be people who are seated at the banquet table in heaven, and the king says to us at that banquet table in the wedding feast of heaven, come up to the front. These are challenges to greatness. These are statements that you should seek to be great. Now, I'm speaking to people this morning who, many of whom have given up on greatness. I think you spend your, your, your teens and your 20s thinking of greatness, and then in your 30s you start rationalizing your failures, and in your 40s you come to grips with the fact that it may not just be failure, it may be God's, God's plan for you not to be great in the way that you were hoping to be great. Most of you thought that you would be doing something different at 20 than you're doing today. And in many cases, what you thought you'd be doing 
was something that, at least in the eyes of the world, was greater than what you're doing today. This is life. <laughs> this is the, the reality of growing old. It is a lowering of horizons. And, and so I'm here calling you to raise your horizons. I'm saying, you know, take your eyes off the floor in front of you and start raising them again. Start looking way beyond. Don't look just at the ground. Look at the mountains beyond. The Bible calls you to stride on the heights with God. It calls you to do great things, and it says that you can do them when you're old. Caleb is an old man when he goes to claim the ground from the, the giants in the, the partition of, of the promised land. An old man, and he says, I'm, I'm able to do it. You may not accomplish the things that you said you were going to do at 20. You may never reach the pinnacle of, of earthly success that you had mapped out in those days. Probably you won't. And if you do, probably it will be bad. And yet there remains a challenge to greatness and an ability to pursue it and to achieve it for every person here this morning. Look. There's a guy on a cross beside Jesus who was a wicked sinner, a terrible man. He may have gotten a lot of money and notoriety by his wicked sins, but he was dying for those sins. There was nothing great about him in God's economy and God's way of looking things as he died beside Jesus. Two of them. The one of them continued his way and mocked Jesus. The other one, the one I'm speaking about, at the last moment in life turned and said to the one who was mocking, he said, you know... I don't know why you're doing this. This guy did nothing to deserve this punishment. You know that we did. That we deserve it. Then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus says, this very day you'll be with me in paradise. And that man's name is lost. But his life is enshrined in the hall of great saints in the last moments of life. Never too late. So you're older and you want to be great. For many of you, that means that you're going to seek greatness in the way that God makes greatness part of the life of, of his people in the Bible. It's going to be a greatness that comes not as you yourself achieve greatness, at least in the eyes of the world, but it will be a greatness that comes as you achieve the greatness of God the Father whose greatness is found in his Son. God's greatness and glory are, are wrapped up in Jesus, in this son who loved the father so much that he came to die for men. That is the father's glory. That is the father's love. That is the, the greatness of God on display before us. And for many of you, the necessary thing at this point in life is to stop seeking your own titles and dreams and to recognize that God has put you on earth to bear fruit for him. And it's through your fruitfulness that your greatness will be measured. So I turn to you and I say to you, you want to be great? Well, there is something about greatness that you need to understand. Greatness I'm not quite sure how to put it. There are two different ways I can say it. Greatness 
is a product of critical mass, okay? That's the lesser way. But I want to introduce the, the idea to you by saying it this way. And then I want to I talk more particularly about it. Uh, greatness is often the product of critical mass. You have one great man or one great woman, and, and pretty soon you have two. And then you have three, and then you have a crowd of great people. Why do you think it was that David had his 30 mighty men and the three who were the chief of the mighty men? Well, it began with one mighty man, right? Maybe it was Jonathan and his going up with David or and it points without David to do battle just on his own against thousands with his, his great armor bearer, whose name we don't know, but who stands there with Jonathan. Maybe it was Jonathan who inspired someone. Maybe it was David with Goliath. David going out against that, that, great, that great foe and taking his life in his hands as a little guy. Maybe that was it. But somehow, greatness was contagious. And then you had another one, and you had another one. And pretty soon you have 30 mighty men, and the chief of them is so-and-so, but they didn't attain to the three. And the Bible is clear that the three are even greater than all the rest of the 30. They're higher, and then the 30, and one of them is the chief of them. And you understand that there's hierarchy of greatness everywhere in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus has a hierarchy of greatness among his disciples. He brings certain men to the top of the mountain. It's... It's reality, and you should seek to be great. It's what God wants for you. So there's a critical mass that's, that's part of the nature of greatness. What you want to do, if you, if you want to be great, and if you want to accomplish great things in the eyes of God, is to surround yourself with great people. Seek greatness. Surround yourself with those who are great in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of man. Make sure that the people that come into your home are great in the eyes of God. Now, you will bring in other people who are not great in the eyes of God. You'll bring in people who don't know the Lord. But make sure that you, you place before your children, by who you invite into your home, by the way that you open your home up to other Christians, you place before them great people. Great people. Not, not the wealthy people. They're not usually the great people. Not the people with the fancy titles. Neither are they usually the great people. Now, you understand that this is true. What does Jesus say to tell John? Tell him that the gospel is being preached to the wealthy? No, to the poor. All right, so I just want to be clear. It's not going to necessarily be the wealthy. It's not going to be the notable people. But the people of God who are great are in our midst and they are available to you. Make sure they're in your home. Make sure that you have them in your home. Surround yourself with greatness. And remember, this is the point I was going to make when I said there's a critical mass to greatness. Remember that in the scriptures and in the, the way that God works, greatness runs in family lines. Okay? Now you may say my family line is not one of greatness. Well, that may be true. But there is never a time when that, can't, that pattern can't be broken. Abraham broke a pattern of idolatry. His father, Terah, worshipped the idols beyond the river, the Bible says. There was nothing great about Abraham's family line. But beginning with Abraham, greatness upon greatness, right? Do you notice that 
that Mary and Elizabeth, Mary the mother of Jesus and Elizabeth the mother of John, are related to each other. We don't know exactly how, but the relationship is through the mothers. We're told that by scripture. And it seems that Mary's descent, as well as Joseph's, is from David. I won't go into ex explanations of why we think this. But when the, the angel comes to Mary, he says, your son will be a son of, of his father, David. And so that's not referring to Joseph there. It seems to be an indication that Mary is of David's line, of, of somehow royal blood. Now, that royal blood is, is somewhat diminished, and it's not ruling the nation any longer the way it once did. But what we understand is that Mary is a descendant of David. Elizabeth, who is related to Mary, has married into a, a son of Aaron. So Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is from the tribe of Levi, which is where the, the priests come from, the, and the priests are the sons of Aaron. He's a priest. He is a part of that family, and yet his wife, priests, could marry people from other tribes. And so his wife appears to be from the tribe of Judah, and like Mary, a descendant, a descendant of David. Which means, of course, that John the Baptist is related to Jesus. And so what we have here in this passage, I mean, it's a... It's a it's the kind of thing that should make the hair on the back of your head stand on end. You have Jesus, the Son of God, the, the great Son of God, the, the Savior of the world, talking to his cousin through intermediaries, his, his cousin John the Baptist, who's in jail because John the Baptist came to announce him and to prepare the way for him. He says, John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of woman. It's his cousin. The two greatest men of all time talking to each other through their disciples. And their cousins. Parents, what is your goal for your family? What is your goal? Why are you raising these kids? Is there a purpose that they know? <laughs> are you calling them to something beyond getting an MD or having a good job? Or Do your children know that you want something from them that is great in the eyes of God? Is it clear in your home? That greatness in the eyes of God is the goal of your family. And if that's the case, are you willing to do what God called Abraham to do? When God comes to Abraham and is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he tells him, I'm going to go down and talk to Lot and see what the story is in, in Sodom. The Lord says to Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. 
Are you commanding, you, chosen by God like Abraham, are you commanding your children to obey the Lord and be great? Are you commanding them? What are you expecting from your children? You'll get what you expect. Are you expecting sin? You'll get sin. Are you expecting worldly greatness? They'll pursue worldly greatness. Or are you commanding them to obey God and to keep his commandments by doing righteousness and justice on this earth? Are your eyes and the eyes of your family fixed on the baubles and the trinkles and the garbage that are all around us? Or are they fixed on something bigger? Is greatness the goal of your family? Do you command your children to be great? Do you expect things of them? I read a story the other day in the news about a guy who had been working with, um, with, with um, immigrants, with uh, refugees. And he recalled in the early 2000s a group of Jewish refugees from, I believe it was Yemen, may have been Libya, who came to the United States. And so the group that was working with these refugees arranged jobs for them, fairly good paying factory jobs. And these Yemeni Jews responded to the, the NGO that was arranging these jobs for them, the helpers who were seeking to, to provide work for them. They said, no. The men said, we don't do this, that work. We don't do it. It was manual work. And they said, no, we don't do it. And it, it sounded presumptuous. They said, we are and have always been merchants. We don't do that work. And the person who was, who was writing about it said that within a decade, every one of them had a thriving shop somewhere in New York City. This is the reality. Our children do what we call them to do. They do what we raise them to do. They do what we do. They do what we do. So where are your eyes? Let me, let me add that if you're going to cultivate greatness in your children and in your life because your greatness is measured by your children just as Abraham's was if you're going to cultivate greatness then you have to cultivate love and joy in your home there must be love and joy and not nastiness and ridicule and sarcasm these things need to be cut out of your home out of your life and you need to adopt a different way of looking at life if these have been your ways. You need to adopt a path of joy. If you're thought of as a grumpy guy, if your family sees you as a grouch and unhappy, you will not raise greatness. It's that simple. You won't. Grumpy guys raise grumpy men. And grumpy men are not children of faith. It's one of the beauties of Jesus. Jesus always seems to be happy. He always has time for people. And let me add that Jesus loves his cousin. The, the love he has for John the Baptist is so obvious in this passage. You go, they're cousins, but clearly Jesus loves this guy. You need to be raising a family where the kids love each other. If it's not one of the highest tests of what you're doing, that your kids love each other or don't, then, then you don't know how to measure Children need to love each other. Children that love each other are on the way to greatness. 
families that have fun together and where the kids love each other, man, that's, that's, that's 80% of the battle. Do your children enjoy each other? Do they love each other? How can I illustrate it? Can I illustrate it by the Bible? Can I tell you that um, Mary and Martha were cousins? They were family members and they loved each other. What about David and Zeruiah? Remember the sons of Zeruiah who were his, his chief, chief army men and, and helpers when he was a king? Zeruiah was a sister. He brought his sister's kids in. Joab was his nephew. <laughs> what about the, the disciples? There are 12 disciples, right? Though 11 at the end who survive, and then Matthias is added to them. You realize that Peter and Andrew were brothers. That James and John were brothers. And that the second James and Thaddeus were brothers. That Mary and Martha were sisters. You find it all through the Bible. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and children and cousins. So you say, well, I come from a line that doesn't have that kind of greatness. What am I to do? I understand. It can be intimidating. It can be discouraging if you look at others. But look what God has done for you. It begins somewhere. God began with Abraham, not because Abraham was great. God said, I chose the least of all people so it would be obvious that I'm doing it. God chooses for greatness those who are willing to cooperate with him. It's funny. Those who teach their children to love God get children that love God. Now, God has to open their eyes. God has to call them. But God calls the children of those who love him. It's just reality. Do you seek the Lord? Are you raising sons of thunder? Are the lines of greatness descending through you or beginning in you and descending down? Now, I want to address a question that may have been raised in your minds that might speak somewhat to the greatness of John or detract somewhat from the, the greatness of John the Baptist. We come across John here asking, are you the one? He's hearing about what Jesus has done. He's heard of the works of Christ and he sends word by his disciples, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says this is absolutely not doubt in John. John simply wants his disciples to hear from Jesus' mouth that he's the Messiah so that they will transfer their loyalties to him. And so, rather than telling his disciples himself that Jesus is the one, he sends them to Jesus to hear it from his lips, hoping that they will then be willing to leave him and follow Jesus. Now, I like this, this explanation in one respect, it's seeking to honor John. It's, it's saying, no, John wasn't af afraid. John was not questioning. But as honoring as it is of John, I think it's unsustainable and unnecessary. Unnecessary because 
greatness will often take actions which lead to and require such reassurance. But before we come to that, let me just say, John's disciples ask on John's behalf, are you the expected or should we look for someone else? Suggesting that there might be another Messiah. Can you imagine John the Baptist sending an insult like that if he didn't really wonder himself? I don't, I, I don't, I think this has to be John. I can't agree that this is a real question for John for a second reason. If it's just a means of getting his disciples to follow Jesus, it doesn't work. Jesus sends them back and they go. But finally, I can't agree with Calvin because the reality is that if you're going to be great, you're going to end up like John. Why is John where he is? What is going on in John's life? The Bible tells us that John the Baptist preached and preached and preached prior to Jesus and his public ministry inaugurating, being inaugurated. He preached and preached out by the, in the wilderness of Judea. He baptized people. And when the Pharisees came to him, he said to them, Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He called them snakes. Who taught you, you sons of the devil? He was a bold man. He preached repentance. That was the good news. He preached it over and over again. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said it to the high and mighty and he said it to the low. And the low listened and the high and mighty generally didn't. And he kept on saying you need to repent about particular sins. He didn't just say it's some kind of general repentance. But he looked at people and said you need to repent of this. And one of those people that he pointed his finger at and said you need to repent happened to be the king, Herod. Herod had taken his, his brother's wife, Herodias, and had brought her into his home and was living with her as though they were man and wife. And so the Bible tells us that John was saying, which indicates in the tense it's used in the Greek, that he had repeatedly been going to Herod and saying, this is wrong, you can't do this. And ultimately, what happened? Ultimately, because he stood for Jesus and he stood for God and because he called out a lack of repentance in the high and the mighty, he got thrown in jail. And there in jail, he's hearing about Jesus and he's hearing the things that Jesus speaks about here. He says, you know, uh, I came eating and drinking. John the Baptist came not eating and drinking and you didn't like him. I came eating and drinking, hanging out with people and I'm called a friend of sinners and I'm called a son of, of, of Beelzebul, of Satan. Well, John is in prison and he's hearing these things. He's hearing Jesus being accused of being a, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he had spent years preparing the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance. And he's going, what's going on, man? What's going on? Have I wasted my life? Have I, have I been announcing Jesus? And really it's someone else. Can you imagine the kind of existential grief that this man must have at this point as he's hearing these things about Jesus that make him concerned? He's in jail because of this guy. He's been faithful. He's been preaching repentance. And now he's in prison. And let's be honest, he probably knows what lies ahead as we know we know because we have the scriptures. He knew because he's no fool that his life is forfeit and he's going to die and he's going to look like he preached and preached and finally got slammed. And he's looking at it and he's judging and he's saying, oh man. Now I want to say to you, if you have not in your life 
come to the point where you have stepped far enough out on the, on the plank over the edge of the ship by faith that there's nothing there but God upholding you. And if he lets you go, you fall, then you're not great and you're not a child of God the way John is. Because John is way out on that plank. He has nothing left and he's going to die. And he wants to know that Jesus is actually the one that he had been promised. He wants to know that Jesus is it. And I honor him for that, and so should you, right? That anyone in these circumstances who has put their life on the line and is ultimately going to pay the price of their life for their love for God is worthy of all our respect, no matter what fears assail them. You read the Psalms, was David always not confident and, and not afraid was Jesus not praying Lord take this cup from me I don't want it Lord this is the glory of John this question I'm not saying it's it detracts from it I'm saying it is the glory he's asking are you the one and he gets an answer Jesus says to his disciples go back and tell your master this. Go and report to John what you hear and see. Now, he's just, we know from Luke, he's just gone through the village by the village of Nain, which is north of Jerusalem. And in that village, there was a widow who had only one son, and that son had just died. And as Jesus came by the village, the widow came out with a bunch of mourners in the coffin of her son to bury the son. It's called the widow of Nain. Jesus saw it, and he looked and he realized what was going on, and he raised that son to life. He raised him right there. And the disciples of John arrived right at that moment. And so Jesus says, you go back and you report to John what you've heard and seen. The blind are receiving light. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. It's a culminating statement, isn't it? The dead are raised. So he begins... With, well, okay, <laughs> report that the blind receive sight. That's great. The lame walk. Yes. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. You can see a progression of greatness, right? Certainly, he, he leaves the best till last. The dead are raised, but that's not the last thing he says. What's the last thing that Jesus says? The dead are raised, and the poor have the good news, the gospel preached to them. Jesus says to John the Baptist, sends word to him, hey, above all, I'm calling those God loves, the poor, to repentance. Because that's the good news that John came with and that Jesus came with and that Jesus sent us with. Repent. Repent. And Jesus says to the disciples, go back. Tell your master. Tell him. This will gladden his heart. This will will make him know what's what. Tell him that the poor are having the good news preached to them. And I want to end with this. The poor are having the good news preached to them. The good news preached to those who have no good news. Jesus didn't come to heal the healthy. 
He didn't come to make righteous those who are already righteous. Jesus didn't come to give his gospel to the learned men or the wise men of the world. These are all things the Bible says. Not many of you were great. Not many of you were of significant renown. God chose you because you were poor and you looked to him. Jesus warns about the dangers of all these other conditions and how they keep us from pursuing greatness because we think our money is our greatness or our wisdom is our greatness or our degrees or our job or our titles or the esteem we're held in by other men. And Jesus says, no, don't trust those things. Greatness loves the poor. Greatness loves the poor. Greatness reaches out to the poor. It doesn't seek the rich. It doesn't want to be at the top of the table. It's willing to be with the poor at the bottom. This is greatness. Never forget that this was the greatness of Christ. It was the greatness of John the Baptist. It was the greatness of David whose wife looked down on him and said, You scoundrel, you you degenerate man, you're willing to look obnoxious and mean in the eyes of the servant girls. And, Jesus, and David says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> there are going to be people who look down on me, but by those servant girls, I'll be highly esteemed. Because Jesus loves the servants. David loved the servants. John loved the poor. Paul loved the poor. Is there... A love for the unlovely, for the unhealthy, those whose bodies aren't perfect, for the poor, for those whose minds don't work right, for those who have less intelligence than you, less money, less looks. Is there a love for the poor in your life? Because it's essential to greatness. Essential. Tell John that the poor are having the gospel preached to them. The ultimate statement. Let's be great. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist and the glory of his life. Teach us greatness from him and from his greater cousin, Father. May we be lifted up into the realms of greatness. Father, I pray that you will do this by making me small in my own eyes and in the eyes of others so that you may be great. Do this for all of us, Father. Win our children to greatness. Cause us to pursue greatness in our homes, in our lives, in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.